You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erica Kohlberg, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. It was $100, and I was ecstatic. I was sitting there in my office in the clinic waiting for my afternoon patients and I just made $100. And you know how I knew? Because I got an email from eBay saying I had sold a painting. And this was the first painting I had sold in my burgeoning art selling business. I had bought a bunch of artwork, put it up on eBay, and I finally sold a piece. And I felt like I was winning the game. In fact, every time after that, I sold a new piece of art, it was like I was winning all over again. I considered it a side hustle. I considered it passive income, but it wasn't really passive at all. I mean, I had to go out and find the artwork. I had to buy it. I had to store it. I had to build the website. I had to put up the auctions on eBay. Clearly, it took work to get to this point. And silly enough, that $100 I made was far less than the hundreds or thousands of dollars I'd make that afternoon seeing patients. But somehow it seemed magical. I had dreams of building a passive income empire, even while making tons of money in my traditional profession. And these dreams fueled me like they fuel so many of you. Erica Kohlberg is an attorney and personal finance expert featured on CNBC, U.S. News & World Report, Business Insider, and The Washington Post. She not only paid off $200,000 of law school debt, but is also building a passive income empire through digital entrepreneurship and YouTube. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You are coming to me from Tokyo, is that right? How did you end up there? I know you graduated Georgetown Law School. What was the path that... that landed you there? I came here straight after law school. So right after my first year of law school, I got an offer to come out to a law firm here. It's one of the largest in the, in the world, and they have a big mergers and acquisitions practice. And that was what I was interested in, cross-border M&A. So it was kind of a natural fit, and I accepted the offer and came out here. Now, you took a very traditional path in your profession. You went to law school, but I saw that while you were at Georgetown, you founded the Georgetown Law Entrepreneurship Club. 
many people feel like it's enough just to become a lawyer. Did you have an inkling back then that you wouldn't kind of do the traditional lawyer profession thing and that you'd have other interests? I think so. So I discovered entrepreneurship probably my second year of law school. And by my third year of law school, I had a full-fledged startup with one of my law school colleagues. And I was just in love with this concept of finding a problem in the world and trying to find a solution to it and being, you know, creating this thing on your own and and marketing it and convincing others to believe in your idea. And I just fell in love with the concept of entrepreneurship, but obviously I had these $200,000 of student loans. So I had to make the very difficult choice at the end of my third year to just accept that law firm offer and go to the law firm. And from there, the startup crumbled, obviously. But it was always kind of in the back of my mind that I would love to go back to entrepreneurship once I have a little more flexibility and don't have these $3,000 minimum payments hovering over me. So I finally made that happen last year. It's an interesting question. So sitting there at the end of the third year of law school, if you didn't have all that debt, would you have eschewed big law and kind of moved into entrepreneurship right away? Maybe. I can't imagine a scenario where i didn't have the debt. So it's hard for me to think about that, but I think maybe, but it is hard to be a risk taker. It is, it's much easier to follow this path that everyone has set out for you. That society tells you go to a good college. Okay. You want to be a doctor? You want to be a lawyer? Okay. I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. Didn't do well in organic chemistry. So it's like, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer and then go to law school, go to the top law firm you can get into. I was very much taught that I had to follow this set path. And I think I also felt a lot of obligation to my parents who had sacrificed so much for me. I wanted to make them proud. I wanted to make them feel like their sacrifices were worth it. And I think to the external world, like the prestige of a law firm is much higher than being a scrappy entrepreneur. So I'd like to say that maybe I would have gone to the startup world, but maybe I would have had to see what it would was like to be a corporate lawyer first. I'm not sure. Did entrepreneurship always speak to you? I mean, was it something like as a kid? I know as a kid, I had these little businesses, like I bought baseball cards and tried to resell them. I was always trying to build a business. Was it the same for you? Yes. Before I knew what the word entrepreneurship was, I think I've always had that hustle mentality. So I remember as a kid, I went around to my mom's garden and I would cut flowers from her garden and then I would take those little Dixie cups and put dirt in them and then put the cut flowers in them and take a wagon around the neighborhood and sell these plants to neighbors. And obviously, like the neighbors knew that it was just this kid who would cut a flower and put it in a in a dirt cup. But to me, I was like, this is genius. I wasn't trying to scam anyone as a kid, but like I just thought it was a great, I thought that's how plants grew or something. I don't know. But <laughs> I think I was always having those little side hustles even as a kid. Yeah, I I definitely did too. And entrepreneurship was important to me. It hits me that entrepreneurship is still a far call from passive income. In fact, I think passive income is its own special flavor. Tell me what passive income means to you and why that was so important to you in your journey. Yeah, passive income to me means optionality. It means that you're not necessarily tied to 
doing something at a certain time. So active income is always going to be, you work for an hour as a doctor, you work for an hour as a lawyer and you get a set amount of money. But passive is so exciting because usually how it works is you put a lot of time and energy up front. And then hopefully if things go well, then the benefits trickle back to you long after you've maybe tone down the amount of work you're putting into it. So I don't think there are very few forms of truly passive income, but I think the exciting thing about passive income is that you do most of the time, it looks like you put a lot of upfront effort in and then those benefits still come back. And I feel like that concept and the freedom and the optionality that comes along with that is really driving me this year. (laughs) And I'm really excited about it. Yeah, this idea of front-loading the work I think is so important. Just like with my art business, it wasn't truly passive. I mean, I had to do a lot of work up front, but eventually that work paid off. Let's go back to your history. So you finish law school, you get a job in a big law firm, you see this $200,000 of debt and you start paying that off. At what point did you start feeling, okay, I'm comfortable now. I can pivot to some of my passive income dreams. So it took me two years to pay off the loans. And obviously I was living very frugally during that time. And then after I paid off the loans, then I spent about another year just trying to build up as much of a cushion and emergency fund as I could before I made the jump. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I wanted about two years worth of living expenses before I could feel okay with the risk of leaving. Because the thing about Again, money brings us optionality. And so by creating this cushion, what I could do is try my hardest for two years to build this legal company that I'm working on, to build passive income streams. And if things didn't work out, my worst case scenario is that I would have to go hope for a law firm job again after the two years when the money was going to run out. But if the best case scenario played out, then maybe those businesses would succeed and maybe I could stay out of the law firm soul sucking job <laughs> and and build my own own company and and succeed in that. So the the key really for me was figuring out how much my expenses were, what I needed to save up in order to hit that point where I felt comfortable enough taking the risk. I think it's a pivotal point and I noticed this in medicine too. When you go for a profession like that what you're really going for is stability and I think both you and I benefited from the fact that once we were there we could make a lot of money and use that money to give us options. The downside is that you have to go into a lot of debt to get professional degrees. And so a lot of people have to do exactly what you did which is put some of their dreams at least on hold for a short period of time until they can start working on that debt. Eventually you got to this point where you could start working on passive income. What I love about starting your own business is it's a lot like throwing things up against the wall and see what sticks. So when you first started, how did you think you were going to make money? What passive income revenue streams did you think were going to be most profitable? And then let's talk about what you're doing now after that. Yeah. So when I first quit, my vision was to create this legal tech startup that would make legal stuff affordable for small business owners and entrepreneurs. So during my years of 
practice at the law firm, I saw that there were so many inefficiencies and I had gone to law school to help people, but as a corporate lawyer, you're helping these large faceless corporations who can afford to pay you a thousand dollars an hour. And that was never my motivation for law school. I wanted to help people. So I found some, I had some ideas for how I could create a legal company that would actually enable small business owners to get that top quality legal pr- protection for a fraction of the price without hiring an expensive lawyer and make it more efficient because law is very antiquated. The people who are running it want it to stay antiquated so that you'll continue to pay them these thousand dollars an hour. And I wanted to change that. So that was my main mission, leaving the law firm. And that's what I thought the bulk of my money would come from. And YouTube was just something that came to me after I quit the law firm. And it was just supposed to be really a passion project. Ironically, it makes a little more than my legal company now. So <laughs> I was that's about how to things s- work out. <laughs> I was about to say, I watched, I think, one of your first YouTube videos. And we'll talk about in a minute what your passive income goals were, but you plotted out what your passive income goals were and plug in law, your digital entrepreneurship plan for how you're going to make the most money. I think that was going to take up like three quarters of what you thought you were going to make that first year out in the world. And that's not how it turned out at all, is it? No. (laughs) So it's an important point. When you started, your expectations and reality didn't really seem to match. Let's talk about what your expectations were. You came out on YouTube and kind of threw out a very audacious goal from the beginning. What was that goal and why were you so open with it from day one? Yeah. So I came out on YouTube in January and I said, look, everyone, I want to talk to you about passive income. I'm obsessed with the concept of creating passive income where it's you can work remotely, you can work on your own schedule. And I love this idea and I want to show you that it's possible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set a goal for myself that I'll build $200,000 of passive income this year. Oh, and by the way, I'm at $0 right now. So, <laughs> so that's how I set the goal. And I really wanted to do it and be transparent about it because I feel like there's always this selection bias where the people who are successful in creating passive income, they only like to brag about it once they've been successful. Very few people are willing to come in and say, hey, I'm at $0. Or I think my first month update, I was at $500. Even though I had this $200,000 goal, I had to say, hey, this is my first passive income update. I've made $500. And it's, it's, It's not something that most people will say because, again, people love sharing their successes. Most people don't like sharing the path before that. And but that's why we have this skewed perception of maybe passive income is is easy, like maybe get rich quick schemes do work. But my goal was really to show people from the beginning and be transparent about it. Like, this is where I failed. This is where I've succeeded. By the way, focus on the intangible wins when you're working on passive income, because the tangible wins might not come that quickly. Let's talk about the vulnerability. I mean, was it hard for you to put yourself out there and say, hey, I'm going to do this knowing full well that you may fall on your face? I don't think so. To be quite frank with you, the videos that are easier for me to make are the ones where I've like, you know, not done so well, failed or or whatever. And, and it's it's easier for me to be vulnerable and talk about 
my failures than it is for me to be like, I'm, I did a great month. Those, those great month videos are hard because I always have to toy with, well, is this going to be perceived wrong? Is this going to be bragging? I'm much easier talking about failures. And I'm always, I've always been like that. I've always been an open book. I don't try to make myself out to be something I'm not. I don't try to be perfect. (laughs) And I know some of your greatest success actually happened in the midst of the pandemic starting. So I imagine that that was very hard saying, hey, look, I'm doing well. I'm starting to really roll in the passive income, but also knowing that a lot of people who might be watching this are not having great luck right now. Yeah, that was really hard. I, the, so May was a really good month for my YouTube channel because a lot of people were watching my videos on stimulus updates. And, and so when it came time to do my June passive income update, I spent probably three weeks delaying it and really trying to figure out, is this going to help people and inspire people and show them it's possible? Or is it going to upset people? And I really had to weigh that. And ultimately, I emailed my subscribers who are trying to follow my journey. And I asked them like, hey, I'm conflicted about this. What should I do? And a lot of them responded and encouraged me to do it. And they said it was inspiring every time I did an update. So I was like, okay, let me try. (laughs) If people hate it, I'll delete the video. Yeah, it's also a great point that if you're building a brand and you have access to your subscribers, there's no reason not to actually talk to them and get their opinions. And I think a lot of people in the midst of building either a YouTube channel or a podcast, often we don't realize that we have this valuable resource right in front of our face that we can utilize and people like it. It actually helps them feel part of the community. I want to talk more about this difference between tangible and intangible benefits. But before we get there, you set a goal of $200,000 of passive income for that first year. Why such a specific number? I think it's important to aim high. I think if I would have said, I want to make $50,000 of passive income, I probably would have made 50, but no, not a single penny more. Because I think when you set goals you really are setting a cap for yourself. So in January, when I said 200,000 and I was at zero, did I realistically think I would hit 200,000? Probably not. I mean, to be quite frank, I probably thought maybe somewhere between 50 to 100,000 was maybe possible. No, but 200,000 was a bit ridiculous. But I I think that you have to set goals higher than you think you can achieve because otherwise you're going to be your greatest limiter and you're going to, you're going to make decisions that would keep you capped at that number. So I just wanted to set a ridiculous goal. I think next year I'm going to say a million because that's also ridiculous. (laughs) It's a great idea. This idea of anchoring yourself higher so that even if you don't get to that point, you'll probably still end up closer to that number than farther away. Just to get a little bit nerdy, wasn't there a solo 401k reason that you picked $200,000 specifically? Oh, you know what? That is right. That is right. So I did the math to max out what I would need to max out my solo 401k from both the employee side and then the employer side. And for the employee side, I think it's 19,500. But from the employer side, in order to contribute that max to get to 56,000, sorry, don't quote me on the on the numbers right now because I can't remember. But I think in order to get to the max, you actually, it ha- it's a portion of your revenue. So in order to get that max, I calculated that you had to get, I had to get to 200,000 to be able to max out my solo 401k. 
So that is, that's a great point. That's another reason why I set the $200,000. So let's get back to this point of intangible versus tangible gains. The reason I want to talk about it is you didn't make a lot of money in the first few months, right? So you almost had to stick with the intangible gains because that's all there were. Tell me about what some of those intangible gains were. Just off the top of my head, I mean, this year I've been learning so many new skills. So intangible wins are like learning how to do YouTube, learning how to edit and market myself and getting featured in press, which had never happened for me before. And probably what I say is the absolute biggest one is always when I hear Erica and inspiring in one sentence, because I say, you know, as a lawyer, I worked so many years. I spent so many years in school trying to become this person that I thought everyone wanted me to be and do the best and be the best in law school, be the best at the law firm. And never, ever once did I hear those words together, Erica and inspiring. And now sometimes regularly, I'll hear people write me on Instagram and say, you know, you inspired me to set out my passive income goals, or you inspired me to tackle my student loans. And that is the biggest intangible one I could have asked for this year. It's I'm so grateful for it. And I think that kind of thing will drive you because I think my first, if you break down what I was making on YouTube, my first six months, I put 440 hours into the channel and I made $900. So I made about $2 an hour for the first six months on my YouTube channel channel, but it was still so worth it for me. And I never felt once like I wanted to quit because it was like, people were saying that, you know, I was helping them get to somewhere with their finances. And it was just, that's what you need to focus on is those intangible wins. Let's break down that 440 hours a little more. If you also add in the time you were spending on plug and law, so you're talking about plug and law as well. So that's your digital entrepreneurship plus the YouTube channel, how many hours a week, especially in the beginning, were you spending working on these passive income streams? I work at 80 to 100 hours a week. It's not recommended, but... (laughs) 80 to 100 hours a week, including your law firm work, or are you talking about just what now you would call passive income? Between plug and law and the YouTube channel. Wow. And you started all this, you were still working for the law firm or had you stopped by then? No. So I had quit the law firm and then started right away working. Wow. So that's something to note. And again, this gets back to this idea of front loading the work a little bit. Your work, especially in the beginning with very little monetary gain with a huge number of hours a week. How did you keep going? I mean, were there moments where you're like, I'm working myself to death and I'm not making anything off of it? <laughs> well, I think the law firm trains trains you to work hard. It, at the law firm, we're doing 100-hour weeks normally, and even that's like too low for them. So, <laughs> so I've always worked hard, but I, I need to be careful what I'm saying because I don't glamorize overworking yourself. If I'm not feeling well that one day, like I am going to take the entire day off and, and just relax and prioritize myself. So I don't think working hard is should be glamorized because there is something real called burnout. And that's something I feel like I've experienced in my career. Many other people have experienced, but it is sometimes you just have to do it for the short term. And I think I feel, I don't feel like I work hard. I feel so energized by what I'm doing right now that it's exciting. Like it's hard to get to sleep because I have this anxiety keeping me up with new ideas for videos and stuff. But, but all in all, I think it is, it is quite a few hours each week. You mentioned you felt burnout. Was that at the law firm or has that been also an entrepreneurship? Mostly at the law firm. 
when you're working for someone else, it's different. It's a different feeling from working the same number of hours for yourself. So there's a switch that almost flipped. You were working for months. You were making very little. You're putting in these 80 to 100 hour work weeks. And then you had a viral moment, which I think at least with your YouTube channel changed things monetarily. What happened? Yeah, so right around the end of April, it was I was about to hit six months on YouTube, and I started to see that a lot of people were searching about stimulus content. So the CARES Act had just been passed March 27th. That brought about the first $1,200 stimulus check in the US. And people were confused. People were wondering where theirs was or if there was going to be a next one. So what I did in that first video was I actually read an entire bill and having the legal background, I broke it down in this simple YouTube video. And that that first stimulus video that I made got 20,000 views. And then a week later, I followed up. And that second one ended up getting something like 800,000 views. And it just completely changed my YouTube channel. I think I went from 2,000 subscribers to 50,000 subscribers in 30 days. I got featured in Business Insider. I had people reaching out to me. So it completely flipped a switch on my YouTube channel. So it's an important point. You searched out to see what people were looking for. You then created a video based on that. And then when you had success, you built off that success and followed up with another video with the same topic. So it was something you did very intentionally, it sounds like. I think the first one... The first one, I was just trying to see if if anyone would watch it. I wasn't sure. But on YouTube, once you do get a semi-viral video, the best thing you can do is follow up with a, another one on a similar topic. So that's the strategy I employed there. And at that point, you had gotten enough subscribers and enough viewership time that you were able to start monetizing. Because with YouTube, you can't monetize right away, correct? That's right. And I wasn't even close to monetizing. I think with YouTube, it's a thousand subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time before you can monetize. And I had a thousand subscribers by that point, but I only had around 2000 hours of watch time. So I was quite, (laughs) I was quite a ways away. And so with that, I was finally able to monetize. And so I went from $0 to on my first full day of monetization, over $700 from ad revenue. And it was shocking. (laughs) So let's talk about where you are today Break down where your passive income comes from and how close are you to your goal for that first year? Yeah, so I can break down YouTube. So YouTube in my very first year hit over 100,000. And from that, around a quarter was from YouTube ad revenue. And that's just what Google pays me. And then the rest was through affiliates and sponsorships. And then you also have revenue coming in from digital entrepreneurship outside of YouTube. Is that correct? That's right. So I have plug-in law and that one, I haven't revealed the numbers yet. So I have to wait on that. (laughs) So I want to pound this one over the head a little bit because I think it's an important point. We've been using this term passive income over and over again. Would you still call this passive income? And if so, why? I would have to caveat it. I don't think YouTube is as passive as I thought when I set out to do this in January. I think 
especially for viral trendy videos, which is what I was able to build the success upon, there's very little that's passive about it because viral videos, what they'll do is they'll basically spike that first 24 hours, do kind of well the first 48 hours, and then they drop to almost zero in terms of ad revenue. So that's certainly not what I thought would, that's not my definition of passive income. Making two, two, two days worth of income from the one video isn't passive income. So I think I have to be a little more careful now when I say that YouTube is passive because I don't believe it's entirely passive. I think YouTube can be passive. I think if you make a lot of evergreen content, content that, you know, how to save money in five different ways. I think that kind of content can live on on your channel for a few years and still be passive. But trendy topics, the ones that are actually going to help you go viral, aren't what I would define as passive. So so it, it's changed. It's changed my view a little. In the first part of the show, Erica Culbert talks about leaving her profession as a lawyer to go into business for herself. After the break, we discuss passive income and being a YouTube star. But first, you know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing. And there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals. And let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Wish you were in early on some of the best performing IPOs of 2019 and 2020. Our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies IPOing like Beyond Meat or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Future Family, the fintech innovator removing the cost and complexity barriers of fertility care. As they transform the rapidly growing multi-billion dollar fertility care industry, Future Family's products give everyone the opportunity to build the family of their dreams. You can get in early on Future Family and other unique opportunities at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. The OurCrowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. Do you ever worry that these so-called passive income streams will dry up? I mean, YouTube is famous for changing their algorithms. And I've also seen during the pandemic with other passive income streams 
that people were getting revenue through advertisers or affiliates and the pandemic changed everything. You were in a very traditional profession before. As a lawyer, the likelihood that you won't be able to find work is very small. Do you ever worry that things will change on you on a dime? Yeah, I mean, things can change anytime, but I think the more diversified you are, so the more different streams you have coming in, the more protected you are against that. And then you also, of course, have to be willing to pivot. I think if I had stuck with my ways of only creating pure personal finance content on my channel versus pivoting to what was trendy, stimulus content, I wouldn't have been able to probably get the same amount of income this year. And so I think it's a combination of diversifying and having multiple revenue streams, as well as knowing when to pivot when it's necessary to shift gears a little. Now, a lot of people are going to be listening to this and thinking, hmm, how can I replicate what you've done? Do you think your path is reproducible? And if so, what are kind of the main things that keep people from being successful at YouTube? Yes, it's definitely reproducible. I always say like, there is honestly nothing special about me. I call, I have this personal finance channel, but I don't have a degree in finance. Like I'm not qualified to be talking about this. So I think it's, and I also just, I'm not good on camera. I stutter. Like I have to make videos. So I have to do so many takes on my videos to get the right video to do. Like if it's a 10 minute video, it probably takes me an hour to two hours to record just because I'm messing up so many times. But I think the thing that will stop people from being successful is when they let those fears and doubts creep into themselves and stop themselves. So I think had I, had I, I of course had all of these fears and doubts as this lawyer, I had other lawyers telling me, you're going to look like a fool. You're going to ruin your professional image. You're, you're not meant for YouTube. Lawyers shouldn't be on YouTube. And then I also had this my own internal doubts, like, oh my gosh, what if people don't like me? Like if I'm boring, what's going to happen? Are people going to laugh? But in order to succeed, I think online and in entrepreneurship, you have to be willing to get over that and realize it's not going to be comfortable, but getting out of your comfort zone is just like taking steps. And I think the first step is the hardest. It feels, it feels like such a long leap, but then each one gets a little easier after that. And you just have to stick with that mentality of like, okay, let me throw myself out there and then it's going to get a little easier. And it will, it's not going to be instant, but things will get more comfortable. And I'm much more comfortable with hearing no's now. As an entrepreneur, I get told no all the time, but it doesn't stop me from still asking, still trying. right? (laughs) And so you just get more comfortable, I think. A big part of your trajectory was that viral moment How much can a new YouTuber work to get that viral moment? Is it something that they can actively plan for and make happen? Yes and no. I think you have to be studying trends. You have to see what people are searching. Set Google alerts in your niche if you want. Follow, I think I was following maybe 70 other personal finance YouTube content creators figure out what they're talking about, figure out what's working for them. I think there are going to be lots of opportunities where you will see something trendy and be able to pick up on it. And so it's just keeping an eye out for those moments. Looking back, is there any big mistakes you made that now if you were to do it again, you would do differently? 
Yeah, I made a few mistakes, probably. I think one of the big mistakes I made was I became so hyper-focused on creating these trendy stimulus videos that I forgot about my true passion, which is the personal finance videos. And with that, what that meant was that my passive income was much less of passive income because I didn't have these evergreen videos building me up. So my YouTube algorithm, the the YouTube revenue would spike when I released a stimulus video and then just basically plummet down to zero. And so that's a big mistake I made. I should have continued to make evergreen content while I was still making the trendy videos. I also think I I have so many mistakes that I've made. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that example for right now. <laughs> One problem I had, now I had been practicing as a physician for almost 20 years when I decided to really move my identity and my da- daily activities away from it. But it was very hard to cleave the part of me that identified as a physician. Do you ever miss the lawyer identity? I know in your digital entrepreneurship, you still carry that moniker, but do you ever miss that lifestyle or that connection to what you were before? I will say quite honestly that the first month after leaving the law firm was very difficult for me because I realized just how much of my identity was tied to being a lawyer. It was something I had worked. I'm sure you might feel the same way. Like I'd worked so many years to earn that title. And then once you leave, I became the black sheep of the legal community. It's unheard of to leave this top law firm without having another top job lined up. People were calling me fun employed. Like they didn't understand that, no, I had quit on my own. I had quit to pursue something that I really wanted to build. And, you know, people said that people spread rumors about me getting fired, which wasn't true, but they just couldn't fathom the idea that someone would willingly quit a job like that to go pursue their own thing. And so it it was hard. It was also hard as someone who, I mean, I take pride in the fact that I did, my parents didn't, you know, go to college in the US and I worked really hard to get into college. I worked hard to go into law school and get this title. And Suddenly, it almost felt like it was stripped away from me. I think the first time I remember when, so my husband is also in Tokyo with me, and we used to go to dinners, and his boss would introduce me like, "Though this is this is Eric's wife, Erica. She's a lawyer in this building." And the first dinner I went to after I quit my job to start my own company, that same boss introduced me as like, "Oh, this is Eric's wife." She used to work in this building as a lawyer, but now she just stays at home. (laughs) And I remember like, honestly, I I think the next day I cried about it because I was so heartbroken that suddenly people's idea of you can shift so quickly. And I think also like probably part of my ego too. Probably I was so used to just the prestige that came with being a lawyer. And I never had felt like I had to justify myself or like prove myself because people were like, oh, she, it was just presumed that, oh, she must be smart. She must be successful. But now it's like, I have to fight these assumptions that I'm fun employed and, and it's a bit harder. Yeah. How do you feel about it? (laughs) Well, I had to let go of a huge amount of expectations of my family and friends, as well as myself, One thing I realized, though, is for me, 
being a doctor never sat well with me, even though it was something that I was highly regarded for, something that I had received a lot of praise for, and I built up a practice, and I had a lot of patients who loved coming to see me. It never felt exactly right. And one of the big exhalations of leaving and focusing more of my time on things like podcasting and writing, et cetera, is I finally felt like myself again, which I hadn't felt for years, but it was only after I left that I realized that. And I'm wondering if you have the same feeling, does this feel a lot more comfortable for you than, you know, being in corporate law? Yeah, it, it honestly feels right. Like it feels like I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And it feels like I'm finally using this creative side of me that honestly had to be suppressed for so long. And it just, I wake up really happy every day. And I can tell you that that wasn't the case when I was at the law firm. So I'm very grateful. I always had this voice in the back of my head. And I imagine you probably did too, is I knew I wanted to spend time doing more creative stuff. But I kept saying, but you can't make a living doing that, right? You can be a doctor and do that stuff on the side when you have a little extra time, but no one makes a living doing that. So you have to keep being a doctor. And I imagine for you, it's especially felt like that because of the debt that you were like, well, I'm not going to make a living doing that. That stuff is all fun and cool to think about, but this is what you do every day when you go to work. Yeah, I can relate. (laughs) So let's look to the future. The thing about digital entrepreneurship and YouTube and social media is that it is an ever-changing landscape. Where do you see things going in the next year or two? Do you see your YouTube channel changing? Do you see your legal business online changing? What do you think is going to happen in the near future? Yeah, I am just hoping that everything will continue to grow. I hope that the YouTube channel will continue to be able to reach people. And hopefully as I build up now, I have to build up more evergreen content because I, you know, (laughs) made that mistake. So as I build up more evergreen content, hopefully that reaches more people. And so really I, I wear two completely separate hats. So my personal finance brand is very different from my legal brand, but ultimately the thing that's in common, the thing that ties them together is I'm really trying to do things differently and I'm trying to make an impact and I'm trying to show people that they can take control of their finances, that they can legally protect their business without hiring an expensive lawyer. And so <laughs> I'm all about change and trying to disrupt and, and, and help because that's what, that's what I think makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm doing something useful with my time. Do you feel like those two hats you wear compete with each other? Like you ever find yourself working on the legal entrepreneurship and you're like, oh, I should really be spending this time making another YouTube video. Yeah, it's very, it's very hard to strike the right balance and prioritize the way it should be. And I think one of the things that I wish I would have realized is that for when I was setting out those passive income goals, I think 70 or 80% of it was supposed to come to plug in law or was supposed to come from plugin law. And that's not how my time was allocated. YouTube takes so much time that it was almost flipped. And I think that's why YouTube was successful, but then plugin law kind of took the back burner for a few months. And so now I took the last two months to shift it a little and focus more on plugin law. So now I've built that up a little and now I have to come back to YouTube and it's always kind of playing catch up. I mean, there's never enough time in a day. So I'm just trying my best. <laughs> 
So we are talking passive income and digital entrepreneurship with Erica Kohlberg. Tell us what's up next in your life. And if people want to know more about the things you're doing, where can they find you? Yeah. So next up, I'm working on my first course. So that'll be launching January 1st. I want to see if that is truly as passive of a passive income stream as many people say it is. So I'm experimenting with that and we'll let people know on YouTube my results with that. And if people want to find me, they can find me on YouTube. It's Erica Kohlberg or my legal company is Plug and Law, just like plug and play except plug and law. So do you want to tease for us what this course is going to involve? Yeah, <laughs> if you want. The the course is a YouTube course for people who don't have time for YouTube. So this is a perfect example, and this is maybe a little bit of insider baseball. But if you are making a living through passive income, and certainly if you're utilizing social media, your YouTube channel makes you money, but can also be a funnel to other products that you're producing. And so people will hear about you through YouTube. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are seeing your videos. And that also will direct them to your other business, which again, makes a lot of sense, especially if you are building up a passive income empire the way Erica is. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Erica Kohlberg. That's a wrap. to spend a little bit of time discussing passive income and side hustles. Erica Kohlberg talked about this quite a bit. Her dream was to leave her law profession, start digital entrepreneurship, and eventually YouTube and create passive income streams. We've talked about this before on Earn and Invest, but I think it's worth talking about again. Are passive income streams truly passive? I look back at my own history and I created a number of income streams, but I have to admit, very few of them seem truly passive. I guess the first and foremost is stock investing. So I really put very little work into stock investing. Of course, I had to take the time to understand the stock market and teach myself about what investments and asset allocations were right for me. But once I did that and I put my money in the stock market, it pretty much created income through dividends and asset appreciation that was almost truly passive. Yes, there were some things I had to do from time to time. I had to pay attention to my allocations. I had to watch the stock market. At times, I would add or take away from certain investments these were all things that did require time, but when it came down to my yearly amount of time that I put into them, it was fairly small. So if you're looking at passive income streams, stock investing is probably one of the most passive. Above and beyond that, I also acquired real estate. Now, Learning how to be a landlord did take some time. And of course, finding properties also took time. So there was a little bit of front-loading that work, right? I had to learn a lot in the beginning. I had to read up on being a landlord and on real estate investing. But once I did that and acquired my properties, the amount of work tapered off quite a bit. Yes, there is definitely maintenance. So for my four condo complexes, which I rent out, I have to spend time finding tenants. I have to write up leases. Uh, I have to deal with maintenance issues. So it is not nearly as passive as, let's say, 
stock investing. But the truth of the matter is I can allocate a few hours a month usually to dealing with my real estate and that's it. And in exchange for that, I get to collect my rents. And after I pay all my bills, whatever is left over is cash flow. And that cash flow, in a sense, does feel quite a bit like passive income. After you leave the stock market and real estate investing, things start feeling a lot less passive. So there are definitely online businesses, blogs, podcasts, all sorts of things you can do to generate revenue but usually the learning curve is greater. So the truth of the matter is, especially in the beginning, these ventures can be a full-time job. You can spend 80 hours a week, as Erica was talking about, forming this passive income stream, which does not feel passive at all. Uh, Most people I know who are small business people who created online businesses had to put quite a bit of work in at the beginning And especially for online businesses, they may be going fine for a year or two or three, but something changes. The market can change. Google's algorithms can change. All those sorts of things can happen such that your once passive business becomes quite active again. So the truth of the matter is there are very few truly passive income streams out there It's more likely you are shifting the work to the beginning and then you are getting residual income from the hard work you did at the beginning of the venture. So a lot of people use this term residual income as opposed to passive income streams. I think it's more appropriate in the sense that passive makes it sound like we don't have to do any work, whereas residual which makes a little more sense, is that we are collecting money based on the work we did prior, and now we can put much less work into it. So that's passive income. I don't really think there are many true passive income streams out there. The closest I can come to is the stock market. It's the most straightforward, and if you put your money in and leave it there for decades, you truly will collect passive income off of it. Everything else is front-loaded work that may or may not produce income in the future. I think real estate gets closer to being passive, but I think online businesses, blogs, podcasts, those types of things rarely truly are passive. This also begs the question of the difference between passive income streams and side hustles. I think side hustles and passive income streams are often confused, but are really totally different things. A side hustle is really exchanging time for money. So as a physician, I often talked about lazy side hustles. What I meant by that are they were side hustles where I already had the skills from becoming a physician that I could then use to make extra money. So I was a practicing internal medicine physician, but I could then act as a administrator or a medical director for a hospital for a hospice company or for a nursing home. And I could use those skills I already had as a doctor to take it on an administrative role. And that would produce more income in the form of stipends or other forms of payment for my administrative work. So as opposed to passive income, side hustles really are exchanging time for money. Unlike passive income, where you do a lot of work up front and then collect residuals, 
if you want to make money doing side hustles, it's usually you, you had to put more time in to make more money. So they're very different things. They are often confused. The point here on Earn and Invest is to say that for you, passive income may be the right move. For you, side hustles may produce that little extra bit of money that you can throw in the stock market. But you also may just believe that working at your W-2 for 10 to 20 years, especially if you enjoy it, is the way to truly get to wealth. And I guess the reality is the answer is different for everybody. Although we look at the mantra of passive income, although we always talk about having side hustles as the most important thing to our personal finance journey they're just different mechanisms on getting where you want to be, whether that be financial independence or just financial stability. There are lots of ways to get there. And if you are not a big fan of passive income, if you don't want to do side hustles, it's perfectly fine to spend your time building up a good W-2 job and making money that way. It's all about decisions. And I guess that's what we're really talking about here is which decisions work best for your life. For me, especially in the beginning, I worked really hard at my W-2 job, did some passive income as well as side hustles, and used those to front load the sacrifice so I could build enough wealth so that I could then take that wealth and put it into the stock market and real estate and allow those assets to make money for me so that I could pull away from my W-2 job. That may work for you. You may decide you love your W-2 job and want to do it for the rest of your life. The thing about this podcast here on Earn and Invest is all of those tactics are appropriate. The key, the reason we have all these discussions is decide which one is right for you. So any questions? That was really cool. I I like the conversation because it covers a few things to me that are important. One is this idea of leaving an identity that doesn't work. So clearly being a lawyer, you probably enjoyed it just like I enjoyed being a physician, but it wasn't my full identity. Second, passive income is kind of passive, but kind of not. You actually end up doing a huge amount of work and that's okay because you're doing work. It's something you're passionate about. So it doesn't feel as onerous as it did to go and, and, you know, be at a law firm. Uh, and third, you know, you've got to keep at it, right? Yeah. I mean, if you had given up in those, think about what would have happened if you had given up after three or four months going, oh, this YouTube thing doesn't work. I'm not going to get anywhere. It's worth it. It's worth it. What's next for you and your business? So I, my general story is this. So I was a successful physician who was getting burned out in medicine, discovered financial independence and realized that I had enough money to live the rest of my life. Fine. Like I, I grew up with parents who are incredibly smart about money. So I was investing, owned real estate. I did all kind of these things already so that by the time I hit you know, 40 or whatever. I'm like, oh, I'm fine. I just never understood it enough. Now I started reading up and I understand it. Yeah. So I left medicine. I haven't left completely. I still consult in hospice and palliative care. So I have a very administrative role where I help teams take care of patients in nursing homes and homes, patients who are dying, but Mm -hmm. I don't need to see patients. And now with the pandemic, I'm doing it from home. So it's the equivalent of 12 or 15 hours of virtual meetings a week. Um, so I still do that because it was the one part of medicine that when I got rid of everything I didn't like, I still liked. 
Um, And so I do, I started by blogging and writing about personal finance. And now I spend a lot of time podcasting. It certainly is more of a passion play. Um, I will monetize it because it's my nature. Like, so I'll take advertisers and I'll try to at least make enough so that I can put money back into it and kind of build it. Yeah. But I think for me, a big part of it is a enjoying this part because I've set spent my whole life achieving goals and I just feel like that drives you crazy at some point because then you achieve the goal and then you're automatically setting another one and another one and another one. So I'm trying to really live much more in the process as opposed to the product. So just enjoying these kind of conversations for exactly what they are, which is just connecting to someone and talking about something cool. Um, But I would like to build up the podcast right now. I'm getting between 40 and 50,000 downloads a month. Wow. Um, But I'd like to push that further. Certainly, I'd like a bigger audience. I have a really good friend who's been pushing me to write a book that intertwines what I've learned from taking care of people dying and personal finance. Mm. Um, So kind of like what taking care of the dying has taught me about managing your money in life. Um, So I am almost finished writing my book proposal. And this person has a lot of connections in the publishing world. So he's going to connect me to an agent, which hopefully if they like my proposal, I will, uh, I'll sell the book and then I'm going to spend the next year or two writing it and doing that whole thing. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. (laughs) Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.